In his teens, Andrew Weeding prowled the pitch as an aspiring soccer player in New Hampshire. By his early 20s, he had earned the moniker America's Next Great Miler after a series of electrifying performances and championships on the track. The two-time Olympian and three-time NCAA national champion joined us earlier this week for some reminiscing on his legendary career. Plus, we get an inside look at his new position as sports marketing specialist for On Running and the nascent On Athletics Club, which is making waves in the sport this summer. Here's Andrew Weeding, the man who made the puka shell necklace as synonymous with track and field cool in the 2000s as Steve Prefontaine's mustache was in the 70s, on mile 59 of the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. All right, Andrew, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Doing great. Doing great. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Travis. Oh, it is, it's our pleasure. I'll, I'll start by saying when I was maybe just a couple years out of college and really getting back into running, you popped onto the scene and it seemed like out of nowhere. And, and so I've been a big fan for, for over a decade now, and, and it's really great to spend some time with you today. Thanks again. Happy to be here. And uh, wow, thanks for the, the, the dedication. That's, uh, that's <laughs> truly, that's, I'm honored. I've been a fan for a long time. That's right. <laughs> so let's, let's take a step back to that time. Now, only a few years before you represented our country as an Olympian in Beijing, you were playing soccer. First, before we get to the running, were you any good at soccer? Oh, well, um, it's, uh, I, I wouldn't say it was bad. Um, <laughs> I, was, uh, I, I was good because I hustled. Um, you see a lot of soccer players kind of quick bursts and then just kind of hit, puddle along and then quick bursts of energy, which is a lot of what soccer is. But I was someone who would run all the way up to try and score the goal and then run all the way back to play defense. And I would do that consistently throughout the game. So I think they say you, soccer players run easily like a 5K every game. And I was running probably 10K plus. So, I mean, like you credit my running to that, but I just, just I was very competitive uh, and I refused to, to quit. So, and that, that's, uh, that's a big part of why I was successful in the sport to begin with. Yeah, I, we see a lot of athletes come to running successfully from soccer. We had Grayson Murphy on the program mm -hmm. last year, and, and she was originally a, a collegiate soccer player. So tell us then about how you came to the sport late in your high school career. Sure. Um, I went to a school that had 300 kids. It was a small private school in New Hampshire. Um, and uh, the soccer team every year held a preseason camp where um, the part of that camp was to run a timed mile, much as a lot of soccer players know like that timed mile was just to, something they all dreaded and they hated. Uh, but I took that as a personal challenge. And I remember my sophomore year, I ran like 5.30 or something. And it kind of piqued the interest of like my soccer coaches. And I kind of started to trickle around the school a little bit. And then my junior year, uh, I came back with that same like, oh, I'm excited for that timed mile. I 
every soccer player hated it, but I was like, I'm really excited for this. And uh, I ran five minutes that year and all the soccer coaches were like, okay, look, we can't just sit, sit quietly while this kid is just wasting talent on the soccer pitch. So it was the, it was actually that varsity head coach who pulled me aside afterwards. And he, I'll never forget it. He looked me dead in the eyes and said, you know, you could be a great soccer player. You could be on the varsity team, but we could be sitting on Olympic stuff here. And like any little teenager in, you know, New Hampshire where cross country is not the most like idolized sport who is desperate to be the next David Beckham. I looked him back in the eyes and I just started giggling. I was like, okay, <laughs> no idea what that really meant. Uh, and so thankfully, because I went to such a small school, uh, the word got around to my teachers, my friends, even some of their family members and my parents started to hear about it. And they, I got started to hear left and right. And these teachers were like, Hey, you should really consider doing cross country and more and more people started to pressure me. And eventually I was like, fine, you know, I'll do cross country and then I'm just gonna do soccer again in the spring. I did cross country and uh, I fell in love immediately. Uh, I was like, suddenly I didn't have to rely on 11, 10 other players to win the, win the game. Uh, it was all about if I wanted to do it, I'm going to go do it. Um, and so I, I still remember that first race. Uh, our captain was like, I idolized him. I thought he was the best and he was always putting on great workouts and I stood, got to the line I looked down the line and everybody's got these tiny little shoes, these like weaponry in the bottom of them. And I said, what are these things? Like I took off of my ratty old shoes and I sat in the front pack and I told the captain, I was like, look, I'll, I'll wait for you to go and then I'll go with you. And after about a quarter mile, I was just like frustrated because I was tall, I was lanky, I couldn't open my stride up, I was bumping shoulders. It's much like you see in like the Prefontaine movies, like where he's always a little guy getting bopped around. I was the tall guy getting bopped around. I got impatient and I just took off. And uh, the rush, yeah, as everybody can relate, when you're in front of everybody else, just took over. And I just ran away. And I was like, if I'm going to lose, you got to catch me because this is, this is an exhilarating rush. I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it. And uh, I won the race and that was it. I get everything. I look forward to every race to do the same thing. I was, I, I run and gun the whole time. Uh, and from that point on, it was like, I'm a runner. Like I love soccer. I will always love soccer. It'd be my first love, but nothing can match that exhilaration of running away from people trying to win races and then winning races. Like that's just, that's a rush you can only create within yourself. How long before you got spikes? You didn't even know what they were at the first meet. <laughs> it was, uh, it was my second meet. I, I after that first one, I was like, mom, I got to get some of these things everyone else is wearing because I got these giant shoes. They got these little banana feet. Like, I got to get out of here to get some proper shoes. So shortly after that, I got some spikes. Yeah, I was going to say, if you win the first one, you probably better get those pretty quickly. And it wasn't just winning the first one, right? You had incredible success. I believe in the 5,000 in high school, you were under 15 minutes. Is that correct? Oh boy, that's a story. Uh, oh, oh, good. I so, like what we've done here. Go ahead. <laughs> I. Uh, oh boy, that is a story. So, uh, the my official time in high school was a fifteen twenty four. I believe it's about that. But there is one race which I assume that's the result you found. Um, we went to Boston to run on like the Harvard track, which if you've ever been there, is like a older track. It's a you know, but it was an open race. It was a 5,000. I was, I was my senior year. I was like, look, I want to try and break 15. That was my goal. Uh, but they lined up probably about 30 people on 30 to 30, 40 people on this tiny 200 meter track and ages from like 17, 18, all the way up to 80, 85, like D1 college runners, like fun run guys, like 
teenagers. Like, so you can imagine by about the third lap, everybody's passing everybody. And the leaders were just somewhere in the mix. And I, I'd see a guy go by me who was like, 75 and then i would I'd be passed by a guy who was like 23 and then i'd go by people like i couldn't keep track so i as you can see where this is going uh i i got to about the point where i i've kept kind of ideas on where people were and i guess okay i think i'm about third or fourth I'm, i've got a pretty good feel that i have not been passed um and so the lap kind of read zero and i took off and ran this rip shit last lap, pardon my language. And he uh, came, came across the line and I was like, yes, boom, 1455. I was like, I lost my mind. I was like, that's it. I just gotta be, but I called, I called Vin Lanana at Oregon. I was like, Hey, I did it. I broke 15 and Vin remembers get, he, he told me later, he got off that phone call and he was like, Oh, I got one. I found one. He like this little diamond in the rough out in New Hampshire. Uh, and then I went over to my parents and I was like, mom, mom, I, I called coach. You see that 1455? Oh, did you see that? And she like holds up like, like this piece of paper that has every lap and every split for every lap. And there's like on the bottom there, the last lap with no number next to it. And she's like, I, I, I guess I just must've missed it. I, I'm sure you ran it. I just, 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 oh God. And so I finished fourth and then 1455 and it was recorded 1455, but as the story goes, I, it's a 4,800 meter race, but the silver lining is I've never heard of a world record for a 4,800 meter race until now. So I guess you could call me a world record holder. Andrew Weeding, high school 4,800 meter world record holder. There you I'm go. glad I brought that up. I hadn't heard that story. I, I didn't realize that was the result. We were talking a little bit before we began recording here about how runners can connect so well regardless of ability level and experience level. You had a moment there in Boston where you're on the track with a 75-year-old guy and who knows who else. Before you even go home, you call Vin Lanana. I want to know, as a guy who had been a soccer player with very little experience running, what the allure was to Oregon and how aware you were of the Ducks distance tradition when you got on board to head to the Pacific Northwest? It's funny. Uh, when I started discovering the sport, I had this Spanish teacher just in my ear, like a mosquito every day, telling me about this Prefontaine guy. Uh, you need to watch this movie. Watch, he, just, he made running cool. He would always say this. And it got to the point where he annoyed, annoyed me to the point where I, almost, I didn't want to see it simply because of how annoying he was being about this athlete. And so I pushed it away, pushed it away, pushed it away for almost a whole year about, you know, my senior year comes around and uh, eventually like I see this like without limits video kind of on the shelf somewhere and I'm like, okay, I, I will watch this video. I can't, I'll do it. And up until that point, I'd heard from about two or three schools. Uh, I had a couple, all of them were on the East coast and I, they're starting to come in more and more, which is, you know, not to toot my own heart. I was like, okay, well, I must be pretty good. So I watched this, pull this video, pop it in, and uh, Oregon had just started to kind of rear its head, uh, and only as a favor to my coach, my high school coach, so I don't, I guess Oregon could be cool, I, that's a long way to go for, for running, but I guess I could put them on the table, sure, pop the video in, and I'm now watching this athlete, this guy who's got this like 
this beautiful complexion, this smooth flow, like, like making him talking with these, like look like this womanizer, this guy was just so cool. And he would win with this like barreling chest and this like swagger about him. I was like, man, like this guy makes running look really cool. And I remember turning that video off me like, I could go run any distance right now. And I think I could probably set a world record. I feel so enthralled and emphatic about this guy. And you know, Steve Prefontaine has that ability. Uh, and again, so now the schools are all coming in. I'm looking at these various schools and it was so clear to me at that point. It's like, I wanna be part of that Oregon tradition. Like I wanna be involved with that history. I wanna know more, I wanna know more. And so that after that video, it was like Google. Uh, runners, uh, Joaquin Chapa, uh, uh, Joaquin Cruz, and then there's uh, Alberto Salazar, there's uh, down the list, Roscoe Divine, all these various names, all these names. Like, oh my God, oh my God, look at these names, these names, this is the history. This guy. And then eventually I got to the name Galen Rupp. You know, it was like his first year, and I think I called him Galen Rupp. But anyway, it's a 15, 24, 5K guy, and sees Galen running 1330, and I was like, oh, I could do that. I could, I could beat this guy. I, I have a bit of ego, I could do this. But suddenly all of these times and big names are kind of being brought into this picture. It's like, oh my gosh, this is, this is where I need to go. I need to be at Oregon. And uh, my high school coach suggested I apply there. And because he suggested it, I did it. But it was not on my radar until I started watching that video and like doing my research. Uh, and that's how, that's how Oregon became easily my number one pick. What was your Spanish teacher's name? My, my Spanish teacher's name was Kevin Ramos Glue. Uh, yeah, he'll be, he'll be stoked to have hear his name on, on the podcast. Yeah, I, uh, I want to give some thanks on behalf of everyone to Kevin for yeah. opening you up to, to Oregon and all the great success that that led to. You mentioned Galen Rupp, you know, another guy with a similar background, right? Plucked off of the soccer field and, and look at the success that you both had later on. Let's go ahead to, to Oregon and talk about your, your track and cross-country experiences there. By your second year on the track at Oregon, you have the best 1,500-meter time in the country. You come within a tenth of a second of an 800-meter NCAA title. I know you would go on to win two more, but I, I want to get into that moment a little bit. Maybe you could describe the emotion of that race where you just get uh, edged out by Jacob Hernandez and the NCAA championship in, that would have been 08, I believe. Good um, morning. Yeah, yeah. Tell us a little bit about that race. Um, yeah, well, uh, it was a hundredth of a second. So it was, uh, if I had a pimple, I would have won. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it was, uh, going into that, it, we were trying to decide if we wanted to go 1,500 or 800. And we'd been just been riding this 800 meter wave the entire year. And we're like, ah, let's just keep, keep that going. And like, I, I was having so much fun. And I think that's the key word is I was just having fun. Um, I wasn't really uh, super conscientious of my standing in the nation or, or uh, even in the collegiate system. I, I knew I was on, on the radars, but I didn't know where I was standing because I always looked at Dwayne Solomon and Jacob Hernandez were kind of the top two guys. Their, their build is the one, too. Um, and so I showed up with the same plan I've been doing every year. It's just, okay, if it goes out hard, just stay in the back, sit, 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 and then kick the last 150. Um, and that's, that's, we knew Jacob and Dwayne were front runner guys. And so the race starts off just as we expected. They go to the front and they're pushing the whole way. And 
come through at about 50, 51. And uh, I, I just kind of zone out. I would zone out until 200 meters to go. And then all of a sudden this like excitement would kind of pick up. I'd be like, okay, let's get going. Let's get going. And I wouldn't really kind of get to that top gear until like 100 meters to go. I'd take you know, big long legs, I don't know, some long levers to get moving, but you use the full full curve, and then you hit the straightaway, and I'm just on this top end speed. And it was always it's this competitive instinct in me. It was just, I don't know, we could have come through in 61 for all I cared. It was just, I had this eye for for the person in front, and I just had a good a good instinct of knowing what my range was and as, in, as far as my kick could, could hold out. And uh, I mean, I think that took some learning, but we got there and with a hundred meters to go, I, they had probably 15, 20 meters on me. Um, and I knew well enough that I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to lose. And whether it was 50 meters, it's just that competitive instinct. Uh, and so I ran down the home stretch and uh, you know, Jacob did a, the smart move and like lunged full body across the line. He, he tumbled across and I just ran through the line and uh, that, that little extra effort got him the win. But um, that was probably the, the first, my first loss that year. And uh, I was, I was okay with it because I, I set like a four, like three, three second PR or something like that, a two set, two, three second PR in the 800. Um, I was I was going to the Olympic trials, which everybody told me was a pretty big deal. And I lost to a guy that I actually considered, I considered a good friend. So I was like, there's no huge loss on my side other than the fact, you know, I had to take silver instead of gold. Yeah. As you described that, I can just remember the picture of that finish line, what it looked like as, as we watched. What'd you take away from that? You mentioned you were on a huge winning streak, right? Coming into that race and you're, you're headed to the trial, so we'll jump to that in a, in a moment. But was there anything you took away from that, that, that maybe responding to just a little bit of adversity that you obviously seemed content with being second place at the NCAA championships? I can't blame you. But uh, anything that you took away from that that you maybe were then more prepared when you got to the trials or for NCAA championships in the coming years? Great question. Um, I think uh, I think more than anything, I I, I kind of just looked at what to what. It just taught me another another way, another racing strategy to to anticipate, to expect. Um, I think I don't know, it, losing is not fun. It is the worst feeling. And I forgot where the quote we talked about the other day. Actually, it's like you know, it was a Moneyball quote. It's like. I hate losing more than I like winning and there is a difference. <laughs> and so uh, it taught me kind of a little bit how to lose and how to kind of swallow that frustration and, you know, learn quick and adapt fast. Um, and a lot of people take a loss and hold it with them for days. Uh, sometimes the whole week until the next race, but I know talking with Vin afterwards and uh, my coaches, it was like, we analyzed where the problems were, what, what my mistake was. And we, we learned quick, adapted, and moved on. Um, Cause in this sport, it's like the, the quicker you can adapt and learn, like the faster you can view to view the next race and be, get, start preparing for the next race. And it's, it's, it was just one of those moments where it's like, I, I didn't like losing, but 
uh, we learned quick and kept our eyes forward. And yeah, I think that was, that was something I took with me throughout most of my career is, uh, you know, you're going to lose and losing happens and it's just a matter of learning and looking forward. That is a great point. Um, you then control the only things that you could control from that point forward, which was learning and adjusting. And, and as you described it there, I, I thought to myself about you maybe responding, controlling what you could control headed to the trials, headed into next season, rather than just reacting to that moment. Mm -hmm. How do we make a little bit of a shift to be better prepared? And certainly you were ready to roll that summer at the Olympic trials. Uh, 08, the 800 meters is the infamous Oregon sweep. You know, you talked about being a wait to the last 150 and then go kind of guy. There's no one in recent 800 meter history who most people associate with that approach as an American more than Nick Simmons, who was mm -hmm. with you on the track that day. How did you approach that thinking that, okay, I know I'm a really good sit and kick, if you want to call it that type of, of runner. And I have one of the best at that on the track with me. Um, I think that to, up to that point, that's the only strategy I knew. <laughs> and to administer it, it came down to, uh, we, if you watch most of my races, I would never run inside lane one. Uh, I was either in the back or I was at the front. It's on the outside, uh, but I was never in the mix because with a stride as big as mine, it was, if I have to stutter step, it's loss of energy and you're, you're, you're setting yourself up um, for, for failure. So I, I always looked at where is the best place to be with 200 meters to go. And if I had to run in lane two the whole way around to be outside, have a straight shot when I hit that 200 meter mark, uh, I would do it. And that's pretty much exactly what I did. And with Nick, uh, I knew Nick like that whole year. We, I mean, he was young out of college. I was in college. We, we met at several parties. Like we've like, they're, they're good stories that we swap back and forth. And uh, that was how I knew Nick until he won that Prefontaine classic that year that put him on the map as an elite contender. And I was like, Oh dang, Nick's, uh, Nick's pretty good. Uh, and the whole media made it Nick versus Kadivas Robinson. Uh, and, you know, Dwayne being the front runner, he's in there too. And I was kind of like that, you know, goofy saw like 20 year old kid who was kind of lucky to be there. And it was true. That's, that was a pretty accurate statement. I was just kind of having fun and I was lucky to kind of get where I was getting. But that was the, the best kind of the best headline I could have asked for going into to the trials because everybody had their eyes on everybody else. And then there was just me quietly lurking in the shadow. And so when it came time to, to show up, I made sure I had a clear, clear path, no one in my way. And I was not on the inside lane. It worked out. And it worked out. Get to go to Beijing. Uh, I can only imagine how amazing that experience was. We're looking back now from a year in which it was supposed to be an Olympic cycle in 2020 Tokyo. Thoughts on what it's like for, now obviously we didn't get to have the trials in, in the eight or the 15 where, where you were strongest, but in the marathon, a guy like Galen Rupp, he's been there before, but let's take Jake Riley, who had a huge breakthrough in Atlanta, an incredible story, been through so much. 
it's hard to put yourself in someone else's place, of course, but knowing the experience that you had in, in 2008 and then were able to have again in 2012, what are the emotions that a guy like Jake Riley must be going through now? And how can you possibly process that dream that only comes around once every four years being hopefully just postponed, but, but at least gone for, for the short term. Thoughts on that just emotional roller coaster. Um, yeah, J- Jake is, uh, I mean, the, the, you, you talk about euphoria. Like he's, he's, he experienced that in its fullest uh, in February. But yeah. I mean, he made that team. Um, uh, I think the, the biggest difference is I was, I was 20 years old and didn't really know much about the sport. Um, I was running miles just based on what my coach told me. I didn't know why or for what reason. Um, and Jake knows this sport. He knows uh, how to train for it. He's educated in it. Uh, he's, he's got the maturity of, of how, to, how to take on a marathon and the, 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 you know, the, the, the skill sets. Um, and with, with that, that second place finish, he, he must, yeah, I, I can only, ma- I, I can, only relate in that way where it's like he just that's that's a moment he will cherish forever as uh i think similar to myself like the the headlines were kind of in every other direction and then jake kind of crept in from the shadows and surprised everybody and i I think that's going to be something he can something he can hold on to and be a part of for the rest of his life um but yeah now with with the olympics kind of teetering on canceled I, uh, it's it's going to be kind of one of those scary kind of frustrating things if we get down to that road, and I'm really hoping we don't. Um, but he's got, again, that, that skill set, that maturity, uh, that realization to know what it takes to be successful at that level uh, year after year. And I think, you know, regardless of what happens with this Olympics, um, you can't take away the fact that he put it all together on the day, showed up on the day, and outperformed America's best to go to the Olympics. So whether you race there or not, he is a 2020 Olympian. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. You just said it. You were a 20 year old who didn't even know the sport. Describe how you handled that meteoric rise from a mental, emotional perspective, because that's a lot of success put on a, a young person really quickly what what did you do to continue the success and just maybe rewind us of what it was like in your head a decade plus ago as this all unfolded yeah um the uh i don't think i've ever felt uh, a change in uh in myself faster than coming back from beijing and starting up the training cycle all over again. Suddenly, like, you do one thing great, and that's the bar for life. And now everybody expects that bar every time you show up anywhere. Uh, And I had never really experienced that. So uh, I came back hungry and eager to to continue showing up like that, to, to fight. Cause I was second to trials. I didn't make anything further than the first round of the Olympics. So it's like, I was clearly not one of the best, but uh, I was close. So I, I wanted to be the best. I wanted to keep showing up. I wanted to meet that expectation. Um, and like, 
I, I let my head slip into media outlets and like message boards and everything. And suddenly everyone's got an opinion. And when you're young and you don't really, you know, you're still kind of formulating your own opinions of life. You're reading people's opinions about you. And it's just, it, it's hurtful. It was really, really hurtful. Um, it's everyone's, you know, again, with social media, everyone's got this like real critical, like microscope on you. And if uh, workout doesn't go well, somehow people hear about it. Oh, he's done. His career's over. Like, it's one workout, you know, but at 20 years, 20, 21 years old, um, every workout needed to be elite world-class. I had to show up and feel good every day. I had to race a PR at every race. Like I had to be this Andrew Weeding Olympic athlete every single day. Cause that's what everybody wanted. And there were a couple practices where I just broke down because I was not feeling great. And I, was, I, I remember talking to Vin about it. Like we just kind of called a workout in the middle of it because I was just getting so frustrated that like, it hurt so hard and it wasn't as smooth and I, was, I just couldn't get the times he was asking. And I was like, I snapped and I was like, Vin, I can't do this. I can't live up to this expectation that everybody wants. And he we, took me aside and he's like, who's everybody? Uh, I was like, I don't know. Everybody from these websites, like coaches, athletes, teammates, friends, family. I feel like I'm, I feel like I get expectation everywhere. I don't think there's a lot of expectation you need to, to abide by. It's people you don't know. Your family is not putting any expectation on you. Your friends and teammates, nah, I'm not putting anything on you. You're letting other people's words dictate how you feel about your running. The only person you need to satisfy is yourself. So when you come out to run, you come out to run for you because you want to be here. You want to have fun doing it. You enjoy it. Don't listen to what other people say because they look at you with envy. And the one thing they want to do is pull that envy out of you and they want to pull you down. And so it, it was honestly that conversation that just flipped me completely. I like, I stopped reading things. I pushed things all aside. I just put it all away. And I just, I, I, I buried myself into my team duties as like, I was a captain of the team. I was like a leader. Uh, I was connecting with like everyone from the team, the throws, sprints, jumps, like all the different aspects of track. I was having fun with my teammates and the number that I ran on the track didn't mean anything to me. It didn't reflect anything about my fitness to myself. I was just purely racing because I loved first place. I wanted first place to be that 10 points I could contribute to the team. And that's, that's what I made my, 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 my college experience about was 10 points to add to our team success. Andrew, I wish right now that I had asked that question at the very end, because that was, that was a walk off, man. Uh, <laughs> that, that first just tremendously valuable insight from your coach. And also then from you, powerful advice to every particularly young person listening who's competitive right now, but, but all of us who still get on the line at a race and it means something that, you know, I like to look at it from a prism of expectations are from people on the outside, just like you said. And so there really aren't expectations. There's only opportunities. You personified that approach in shifting the paradigm and coming back to what you loved about it, what you enjoyed about it. And it's not so much just about the stopwatch. Uh, mm -hmm. Man, that, that was, 
that's beautiful. And I think it, it, in a, a culture of, you mentioned it now in particular, social media, but just media negativity in general, it, it's so easy to get lost in that. And to hear those words, that was really meaningful. You, you also added there that you know, maybe you weren't hitting times in, in workouts leading up to that. And, and it's a bit of a segue into what I wanted to ask next. If we went back to that 08, 09, 2010 period, you, you have Beijing, you come back, you clearly regrouped well after struggling with that stuff because you get two 800-meter national titles. You go 800, 1500 double. If we could look inside your training from that moment, what was a favorite workout that you did? And how critical did you think that that Oregon culture uh, with your teammates and coach were to your success? Sure, yeah. I'll, um, uh, I'll start with the, uh, the workout. Um, my, my favorite workouts that I like to do dictated uh, or uh, mirrored race scenarios. And we were always preparing for championship racing. And the, we, it was, uh, two, it was like a thousand meters at like your tempo pace. And then it'd be 500, 300, 200, three times. Um, and if you broke it down even further. So if you had your 500 meter full like interval, you'd run the first 200 in say 29 and then the next 300 in like 39. So you anticipate the drop in pace. And then like the 300 would be something similar. So the first hundred would be 15 and the next 200 would be 25, you know? So it's like you anticipate these pace changes to adapt your body to that championship style racing. And I loved it because uh, it gave me the ability to visualize the race itself. Uh, and there were a lot of times uh, we'd be coming up to that pace change and I would, in my head, hear like Paul Swangard or one of the, one of the announcers be like, oh, Weeding and Simmons are coming down with 200 meters to go. And I'd like commentate and like Russell Brown's I training, but oh, Russell Brown or all these names at the time coming into my head and be like, oh, this is going to be, I commentate, just getting so amped up running around and it, it just come across the line and uh, the visualization, the excitement of running, it, you just forgot about the effort that you were putting in. And suddenly you're running like a 23, 200. And uh, this is true. I looked at my log. I saw it was 23, 200. I was like, Jesus Christ, how the hell did I do that? <laughs> so, but doing these things, like these workouts where uh, it, these fun little ways of taking your mind off of the effort, like that, the pain and just putting it into the excitement of running. Uh, and I guess, yeah, taking your mind off of the pain and putting it into the effort. And uh, that, that was what Ben was really good at was masking hard pain and putting it into uh, fun effort. Uh, and so that, that work, I was a thousand, three times, five, three, two, and then a thousand to finish it like tempo pace, just to flush out the lactic acid. And um, yeah, I, I, I always love doing that one. Uh, and then immersing myself in the team, I, I made that priority one. There's, I've always said there, there are kind of two types of athletes. There's the, the, the 10, 10 point runner and there's a one point runner. Um, both athletes win the race. It's just, what's your motivation for winning? And I always wanted 10 points for the team versus the one point athlete who wants first place, who wants that number one, who wants the title and glory at first. And so I, I immersed, I, I wanted my team to be better than everybody else. I, I gave life so that all of my teammates could share in the success. Uh, that meant more to me than running a world 
record or American record. I wanted to share that success with X amount number of my teammates. So, uh, so when, yeah, changing the expectation and dealing with that pressure, I turned to my teammates uh, and I can't thank them enough for kind of distracting me from all the outside influence and just being like, guys, look, we would constantly talk about scenarios like, oh, let's just, we can win points here, here, here. Like, how can we get our team number one? Like, it was, it was never about, uh, Andy, you should run this because you can win this. Andy, you should win. Andy, get a win, get a win. And it was like, no, 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 let's get, let's get 10 points here, six points, three points. If we got our javelin here, we get that points, this points. And we, we always talk together and not individual, you know, and, and that, that made, that made running so much more fun and less about the time you finish with. You had a tweet back in, I think it was maybe April or March as the pandemic starting to spread and canceling uh, track races. And you mentioned that a month out of the year is not enough time for an athlete to truly reset and get ready to attack again into the next season. And, and of course, with your year round cycle that you were in as a competitor, we see people at all kinds of distances and marathoners who you know, get a brief break out of a spring race and then they get back into grinding it for a fall race. And, and so you suggested that perhaps the long-term positive consequence of this time off could be some runners really resetting and having incredible performances. So what happens? Diamond League is, is back in action. And Monaco a couple of weeks ago and then Stockholm exceptional times um, and some really great competitive races. So a couple pieces to this. First, were you watching? Did you uh, pay attention to what happened in Monaco and thoughts on that? Uh, I didn't, I didn't watch it. Um, I, I watched a bit of the, the, the replay. Uh, holy crap. That's, <laughs> uh, I got, Chad was moving. God, yeah. I mean, unbelievable. I, and then most of that by himself, oh God. I, I honestly thought, that 5k record is going to stand forever because seeing seeing 5k races teammates friends foes everybody running these times like 13 13 flat uh you're like okay 12 36 is not gonna be touched like that's forever and then you know also i see mohamed run 1247 oh wow and then a couple of the bottom guys go just under 13 wow suddenly 13 is kind of like that that four minute barrier now it's like going on the 13 starting to be like the next big thing. And, and then all of a sudden that pops off 1235. Like, I don't know how I can't even put it into words. Like I can't fathom the amount of talent, effort, training you put into to prepare that, do that and then pull it off. I mean, two laps on a race is one thing, but 12 and a half laps at that pace. I mean, all the credit to him. That was unbelievable. Yeah, for the average person to start thinking about, we're running close to four minutes a mile or 5,000 meters is breathtaking. You're right. Now, it was also 10th anniversary of a really great performance yes. at Monaco by you in the 1,500 meters, right? Yes. At 330.9. I went back uh, before we talked today and watched again the post-race interview that you had because I had this thought in my mind that it was a really good interview and, and really fun. And so I wanted to go back and of course it's on YouTube now. And 
Yeah, there was this incredible shock and awe in in your voice and in your face after that race when you put down one of the fastest 1500 meter races in American history. Take us inside a little bit of that day for you, maybe what you thought you could do uh, based on your fitness, how, how that felt in the moment. A- and then you're looking forward from that. Wh- what were you thinking could possibly be next? It, that whole day, there's, there, there are songs I listened to from the playlist of music I was listening to that day that trigger my memory there. Um, but I, I, was, I was just having, I, that was probably the epitome of fun was that day. Uh, I was warming up in basketball shorts and a tank top, and I was just kind of goofing around with the flow track guys. I was doing strides and cracking jokes with Vin, and like you wouldn't think I was lining up against the world's fastest milers in about 25 minutes. It is, you wouldn't think I was even going to race the race because I looked like a, a goob out there. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I think up to that, I'd run like 337 and it was my 1500 PR at that time. And I, I didn't really put expectation on it as I had kind of done since, since 08. I was like, you know what, let's not put any expectations, just kind of have fun. Um, I'm kind of on the radar, but off the radar, it's like, you know, Everyone's looking at it was uh, Kiprop and Silas Kiplagat were kind of the two bigger names, I think it was. Um, and it's like, hey, you know, let's just go out and see what happens. And uh, we had talked about what, uh, how to handle this race. And my, my whole strategy was more just like, look, these guys can run 52s pretty consistently and they're just going to go out and run them. So like, why don't I just hop in back third and sit comfortably? And I think I ran lane one and I, like lane two from for part of that race, uh, and didn't really come into lane one. I think until probably the last lap, and uh, we came through. Sure enough, they're like 50, 50, 51 first sec first lap, and I was towards the back of fifty three, fifty four, and uh, just kind of sat and patiently waited and waited and waited and. I remember bumping elbows with a few people. I remember Ryan Gregson was there. You know, he's a bit, he's got a bit of those wide, wide, sharp elbows. And uh, but we came up to a lap to go, and you could see the backs of people's heads. Like as you know, in races as you do, like the heads kind of start to bobble when when they're getting a little tired. And I, as I go to the lap, I'm like, I'm I've got a lot of control right now. And you can see everyone's heads are starting to bobble a bit. And I was like, oh, man, I think, I think I got a good shot here. So I just, I didn't really change the pace a whole lot more. I just fought to maintain the pace all the way through. And with about 100 meters to go, I, I just, I dug deep to find whatever else I could find. And uh, I think it was actually Ryan Gregson coming up on my shoulder that sparked me awake to downshift to another gear and I came across, yeah, 330.9. And uh, I had kind of ex- hoped for 35, 34, just because that was the numbers everybody was throwing around, Olympic trial, Olympic standards, this and that. And, um, and yeah, I looked up at the board. I was like, is that the time of day? That can't be right. Like, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> and, and sure enough, and Vin was there. He was pretty stoked. And then uh, I saw Ryan Fenton flow track was there. He was high-fiving. I think that interview was like, well, tell us about it. I was like, I don't know what to say. That is a very fast time. You've dealt with some injuries. 
in, in the later years of your career. And in some ways, it, it felt like when when you retired recently, to me and a lot of people, it was like, wow, Andrew Weeding's retiring already? You know, it, it felt like you were still just that kid who had popped onto the scene. <laughs> and you, you did an interview with Runner's World. And uh, there's a, a really telling quote that, that I want to read here. You said, I lost that fire. I started focusing too much on numbers in my training, the mileage. When it came time to race, I was too distracted by what my potential could be. Instead of eyeing up the people around me and hunting them down, I didn't go hunting. I went and showed up and followed the hunters around. When we juxtapose that with what you just said about how you responded to 08, which led to so much greatness, this seems to be very telling in why you were ready to, to move on. But I, I want to spin it just a bit for the person who, regardless of level of competition, in our current circumstance where there hasn't been a lot of racing, who, who just can't wait to get back on the line. Mm -hmm. and, and, and we're all so hungry to, to experience that together again. If we spin that quote a bit, advice you have for runner from recreational to competitive about how to stay in touch and in tune with that fire when it feels like maybe it's slipping away a little bit. Wow. Uh, great question. Heavy question. Um, yeah, Travis, you got, a, you got some good, some good burners here. Good. <laughs> uh, yeah. The, uh, um, you gotta have goals and I know it's hard not to, not to have a marathon to chase or a time to really kind of be able to chase, uh, but you, you got to have some some goals that you can simplify down, kind of work backwards from your ultimate goal. Because uh, just waking up and running isn't enough motivation, I don't think. Uh, I think you need to have something you're working towards, uh, something you can check a small box, even if it's something simple. You know, if if running every day is the goal, all right, good. You're getting these done, but where's the end? Um, and if, if it's a, if it's to run a 5k, great, like complete a 5k, that's a good goal. Like to, to, to complete a time, a distance is, it, I always think is a great goal or to run an entirety of certain time is a great goal. But I, I, I caution people to when, when setting goals to, to kind of steer away from a time goal I know it's frustrating because now it's like, that's the only thing we can really focus on is I can go by myself down to a track and run and shoot for a time goal. Um, but it's scary because when everything does open back up, suddenly competition turns into time trialing because we've been training ourselves for time. So if, if it's gotta be you versus you, make sure you have, you, you have a competitive something competitive within yourself that you're fighting against. Um, if it's running a hundred meters in 14 seconds, okay. My personal best 14, I keep trying to beat that. And it's, it's it sounds so uh, contradictory, uh, but you have to find a, a competitive a competitor 
And if it's going to be you, it's got to be something about competing that doesn't center solely around time and, or maybe adjusting the time in itself. So how far can you run in an hour? How far can you run 20 minutes? Um, I, I just, I just don't want to see our, our sport and everything kind of sent like suddenly divert into let's all just run a time because if it's a slow race, but it's a blanket finish, it's really exciting to watch. And I, I've, I've always loved watching that competitive fire in the, in track and field. Um, so now if, if time is the goal, that makes sense for now, but just don't lose your competitive spirit. Find something that you got to be competitive in, whether, you know, beating your wife to putting the dishes away, something simple, but don't lose that fire of being competitive just because we can't race. Yeah. The great performances we remember in every sport, really high school, college, professional, uh, novice recreational runners so often are, are about the competition, not just the time on the clock. Uh, right. You've moved on to a new role now with On Running. So what brought you to On? Um, I, uh, I, I kind of had an ear um, in, in their direction uh, about a year, a year or two after I, I retired. Um, I, was, I had a friend of mine, former teammate who was working here and she, and she, uh, she was kind of, you know, we're close friends. We'd always, you know, grab coffee and talk about life. And she'd always talk a bit about work and what's going on and on. And I'd always kind of hear the inside things that were happening. I was like, man, this is a pretty cool little brand that's kind of taken off. And in a year and a half ago, I think is when uh, it started to become like a realization that there is an opportunity to maybe work here. And I was like, man, that, uh, I, the the sports marketing piece of where I am now didn't really fully exist. And um, my friend was asking me, like, you know, she was asking me for numbers of people within the industry and or like my thoughts on certain runners and certain ages. And like we were kind of working together, but not officially. Uh, and so when this opportunity came, she's like, I need help here. And this opening just opened up. I need you to apply. I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Like, this is great. And, and on has just been such a, like, it, doesn't, it seems like a bit of a pioneer now. Like they, they're kind of coming in with this, like a bang. Uh, and we're, and I've, I'm having so excited to kind of create this elite running aspect to it now that's become a little bit more vibrant and, and, and on, we know with Roger Federer on board and now we've got our, or the on that on athletics club that we've created. There's this, this buzz around this brand and this, 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 and this huge boom in running right now is, is, is doing us a lot of good. I mean, on, I mean it's on with the backdrop of a terrible pandemic, but, um, we, we are, we're, proud to be making the most of it. And it's been, it's been a pretty fun, fun ride for the last year. So uh, it's uh, on is on is making waves. You mentioned the on athletic club, got some great young athletes there. Thoughts on that group and what the hopes uh, are for the future with that team. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The on athletics club, like that was one of the first things I wanted to kind of get going when I came on board. It was like, look, we need a professional team that we can work with. We can help develop products. We can market, we can get, make a very loud wave, like loud noise around. Like, and we, it took, it took time to kind of get the momentum. Um, and then Steve DeCoker came on board, who's now my manager. And we, two of us kind of just tackled this head on and we, we came out and we're like, look, here's, here's a few of our athletes, the athletes we'd like to go chase. Um, and when we stepped onto the field to go, go find these athletes, because of this pandemic, a lot of budgets kind of got kind of 
fizzled and cut and in trouble. And so some of the bigger brands, because they're in so many different channels, running had to kind of fall a little bit lower down. And so we came out looking for athletes and we were one of the few brands to come out looking. And so we, we made it very clear, like we want to, we want to, Joe Klecker to be one of our first, you know, to kind of look at, you know, Ollie Hoare and Carlos Villarreal. They've got these great Myler talent and Jordy Beamish is talented beyond belief, you know, and then Alicia Monson was one of our top girls. Uh, and then Leah and Emily and Alicia Konachek, all these, all these athletes kind of just showed up at the right time. And we were there to, to bring them on board. It's just, it, all the pieces fell into place. And moving forward, we, we want to develop a top end product, a performance product with them. We want them to be kind of the, the, the face of our performance running. Um, and we want them to obviously make Olympic teams and be talented and want to hold their hand the whole way through. Yeah, you got potential for a heck of a team with all the athletes you just mentioned. Hey, how about uh, Ritz as coach? Right, day oh nine, gosh. taking over. Was he a guy you looked up to when you were getting started? Oh man, Dathan Ritz. We couldn't have asked for a better guy to be our coach. Honestly, he, uh, yeah. When I was getting into it, he, um, I think he had just kind of come out of college and he was just starting to get get moving. Uh, and he had gravitated up into like the the, the Oregon project area up into Portland. And uh, he was always running the longer distances though. So we'd, we'd always connect and it'd be just, we'd be riffing back and forth, like sharing laughs, but I'd always look across the table. Like, this guy's like, you know, with all due respect, half my size, I can run twice as far and twice as fast. So like, it's, uh, I got a lot of respect for that guy. And so throughout the years, you can the 08 team, the, the 12 team, uh, just kind of various events throughout Europe and the U S like we'd always overlap and, uh, we'd share a lot of good, good memories. Uh, and then, um, yeah, when it came time to pick a coach, uh, it just so happened when we reached out, he was like, yeah, I think I'm probably going to retire sooner. Like get out of here. You don't say. And so he, uh, he just, ha he's so invested, which is great. He wants his athletes to be the best. He wants the brand to do well. And he wants to, to be personally help uh, advance our products. So I, the, he's, he is the best guy we could have asked for. Well, we wish you guys luck with that endeavor. Uh, that's really exciting what you put together. And as you said, able to capitalize in a time when maybe some other brands did, weren't able to offer the opportunities that, that you could. And hopefully the, the long-term play there is, is strong. Before we let you go here, real quick, wrap up with a few lightning round questions for you. Andrew Weeding, you're on the hot seat. Okay. You ready? Mm -hmm. Hit me. Okay. Thing about New England that you've missed most since moving to the Pacific Northwest? Oh, the fall. The, oh. the orange, yellow, red leaves on a dirt road, a golden hour, going for a run. Just this beautiful, picturesque painting. I, I missed those runs in those dirt roads through Vermont. It was, I could not have asked for a better, those better setting. That sounds wonderful. <laughs> Let's flip it, though. The thing you miss least. Least? Uh, <laughs> negative, negative 20 to 30 degree <laughs> temperatures. Those are, those are no fun. <laughs> I, I assumed you, you might go there. Your greatest memory from Hayward Field? Um, the one, two, three sweep uh, with, the, with the Ducks, with uh, Centroids, myself, and AJ Acosta, my senior year. No, nothing against the 08 race. That was, that's a very, 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 very close second. But I think being able to stand on the podium with two guys I'd spent four years 
training with, working with, partying with, hanging out with, video games, food, meals, spending lots of time with. I mean, I could have finished there and been just as happy. 2010 NCAA 1500. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. special, special moment. Have you been to the new stadium? I have seen it from the outside. I've not been inside yet, but I've heard it's quite a spectacle. Yeah, crazy excited to, to get there at some point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We've ended with this the past few times. It, actually, another Portland guy, I don't know how this got there. We had Craig Nichols on a month or so ago, yes. and uh, it devolved into like a food tour of the country. <laughs> and so now we've, we've ended all the interviews with this question. You're on the spot here. You're making a choice among breakfast foods. I'm going to give you three, and I need you to rank them for me in order. Pancakes, waffles, French toast. Oh, oh easy. Pancakes. I'm a pancake guy. Throw some uh, bananas or some chocolate chips in there, blueberries. Oh, shoot, you can put whatever you want. You can't really do a whole lot of good mixing with a waffle. So mm-hmm. I, I, don't, I don't know. And, and I always find it weird that a waffle costs more than pancakes at like breakfast places. It's like you get one versus like a stack. I, I, don't, I don't get that logic. There's probably some financial whiz who knows more about that than I do. But I would put pancakes, French toast, waffles. Okay. I haven't paid attention to that on the menu on the pricing. Now I'm going to be looking out for that. The options and what you can create with pancakes are enticing. Right. I, I like peanut butter chips in there. Uh, that, that's, a, that's a nice little twist. I, I, yeah. I, I remember going on vacation to Florida when I was young. There was a place we always went to for breakfast that did the peanut butter pancake and that just stuck with me. Oh, Beautiful. It just hits, it gets, it hits just right. You know, like the is <laughs> just a food in general. That's just fantastic on almost anything. So it's um, pancakes, just that much more. So. Absolutely. Andrew Weeding, world record holder at 4,800 meters and just all around good dude. Uh, thanks so much uh, again for, for coming on. This was a lot of fun. And we're excited to see what you guys at ON have coming here in, in the near future. Best wishes to, to you and everyone out there. Stay well with uh, everything going on and, and safe in Oregon. Cool. Yeah, thanks, Travis. And yeah, and all the best to you as well. Thanks again for having me on. You've got a, you got a great thing going here. And uh, yeah, if you, if you ever need to bring someone on and talk more about food and world records, I happen to be pretty good both. So. <laughs> Thank you. Our our pleasure, man. Absolutely. Take care, bye.